This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Police Operation by H. Beam Piper. Part 2 the rocket that was to take him to headquarters was being hoisted with a crane and lowered into the firing stand, and he walked briskly toward it, his rifle and musette slung. A boyish-looking pilot was on the platform, opening the door of the rocket. He stood aside for Verkan Vall to enter, then followed and closed it, dogging it shut while his passenger stowed his bag and rifle and strapped himself into a seat. "'Durgabar Commercial Terminal, sir?' the pilot asked, taking the adjoining seat at the controls. "'Paratime Police Field, back of the Paratime Administration Building.' "'Right, sir. Twenty seconds to blast, when you're ready.' "'Ready now.' Verkan Vall relaxed, counting seconds subconsciously. The rocket trembled, and Verkan Vall felt himself being pushed gently back against the upholstery. The seats and the pilot's instrument panel in front of them swung on gimbals, and the finger of the indicator swept slowly over a ninety-degree arc as the rocket rose and leveled. By then, the high cirrus clouds Verkan Vall had watched from the field were far below. They were well into the stratosphere. There would be nothing to do now, for the three hours in which the rocket sped northward across the pole and southward to Durgabar. The navigation was entirely in the electronic hands of robot controls. Verkan Vall got out his pipe and lit it. The pilot lit a cigarette. "'That's an odd pipe, sir,' the pilot said. "'Out time item?' "'Yes. Fourth probability level. Typical of the whole paratime belt I was working in.' Verkan Vall handed it over for inspection. The bowl's natural briar-root, the stems of sort of plastic made from the sap of certain tropical trees. The little white dot is the maker's trademark. It's made of elephant tusk. Sounds pretty crude to me, sir. The pilot handed it back. Nice workmanship, though. Looks like good machine production. Yes. The sector I was on is really quite advanced, for an electrochemical civilization. That weapon I brought back with me, that solid missile projector, is typical of most fourth-level culture. Moving parts machined to the closest tolerances, and interchangeable with similar parts of all similar weapons. The missile is a small bolt of copro-alloy-coated lead, propelled by expanding gases from the ignition of some nitrocellulose compound. Most of their scientific advance occurred within the past century and most of that in the past forty years. Of course, the life expectancy on that level is only about seventy years. Huh! I'm seventy-eight, last birthday, the boyish-looking pilot snorted. Their medical science must be mostly witchcraft. Until quite recently it was, Verkan Vall agreed. Same story there as in everything else. 
rapid advancement in the past few decades, after thousands of years of cultural inertia. You know, sir, I don't really understand this paratime stuff, the pilot confessed. I know that all time is totally present, and that every moment has its own past-future line of event sequence, and that all events in space-time occur according to maximum probability. But I just don't get this alternate probability stuff at all. If something exists, it's because it's the maximum probability effect of prior causes. Why does anything else exist on any other timeline? Verkenval blew smoke at the air renovator. A lecture on paratime theory would nicely fill in the three-hour interval until the landing at Durgabar. At least this kid was asking intelligent questions. Well, you know the principle of time passage, I suppose, he began. Yes, of course. Rogam's doctrine. The basis of most of our psychical science. We exist perpetually at all moments within our lifespan. Our extra-physical ego component passes from the ego existing at one moment to the ego existing at the next. During unconsciousness, the EPC is time-free. It may detach and connect at some other moment with the ego existing at that time point. That's how we precog. We take an auto-hypno and recover memories brought back from the future moment and buried in the subconscious mind. That's right, Verkenval told him. And even without the auto-hypno, a lot of precognitive matter leaks out of the subconscious and into the conscious mind, usually in distorted forms, or else inspires instinctive acts, the motivation for which is not brought to the level of consciousness. For instance, suppose you're walking along North Promenade in Durgabar, and you come to the Martian Palace Café, and you go in for a drink, and meet some girl, and strike up an acquaintance with her. This chance acquaintance develops into a love affair, and, a year later, out of jealousy, she raises you half a dozen times with a needler. "'Just about happened to a friend of mine not long ago,' the pilot said. "'Go on, sir.' "'Well, in the microsecond or so before you die,' or afterward, for that matter, because we know that the extra-physical component survives physical destruction, your EPC slips back a couple of years, and reconnects at some point pastward of your first meeting with this girl, and carries with it memories of everything up to the moment of detachment, all of which are indelibly recorded in your subconscious mind. So, when you re-experience the event of standing outside the Martian palace with a thirst, you go on to the Starway, or Nergal's, or some other bar. In both cases, on both timelines, you follow the line of maximum probability. In the second case, your subconscious future memories are an added causal factor. And when I backslip after I've been needled, I generate a new timeline, is that it? Verkenval made a small sound of impatience. No such thing, he exclaimed. It's semantically inadmissible to talk about the total presence of time with one breath and about generating new timelines with the next. All timelines are totally present in perpetual coexistence. The theory is 
that the EPC passes from one moment, on one timeline, to the next moment on the next timeline, so that the true passage of the EPC from moment to moment is a two-dimensional diagonal. So, in the case we're using, the event of your going into the Martian palace exists on one timeline, and the event of your passing along to the starway exists on another, but both are events in real existence. Now, what we do in paratime transposition is to build up a hypertemporal field to include the timeline we want to reach, and then shift over to it. Same point in the plenum, same point in primary time, plus primary time elapsed during mechanical and electronic lag in the relays, but a different line of secondary time. Then why don't we have past-future time travel on our own timeline?" the pilot wanted to know. That was a question every paratimer has to answer every time he talks paratime to the laity. Verkan Vall had been expecting it. He answered patiently. The Galdron-Hestor field generator is like every other mechanism. It can operate only in the area of primary time in which it exists. It can transpose to any other timeline, and carry with it anything inside its field. But it can't go outside its own temporal area of existence. Any more than a bullet from that rifle can hit a target a week before it's fired," Verkan Vall pointed out. Anything inside the field is supposed to be unaffected by anything outside. Supposed to be is the way to put it. It doesn't always work. Once in a while, something pretty nasty gets picked up in transit. He thought briefly of the man in the black tunic. That's why we have armed guards at terminals. Suppose you pick up a blast from a nucleonic bomb, the pilot asked, or something red-hot or radioactive. We have a monument at Paratime Police Headquarters in Durgabar bearing the names of our own personnel who didn't make it back. It's a large monument. Over the past ten thousand years, it's been inscribed with quite a few names. You can have it. I'll stick to rockets, the pilot replied. Tell me another thing, though. What's all this about levels and sectors and belts? What's the difference? Purely arbitrary terms. There are five main probability levels, derived from the five possible outcomes of the attempt to colonize this planet seventy-five thousand years ago. We're on the first level, complete success, and colony fully established. The fifth level is the probability of complete failure. No human population established on this planet, and indigenous quasi-human life evolved indigenously. On the fourth level, the colonists evidently met with some disaster, and lost all memory of their extraterrestrial origin, as well as all extraterrestrial culture. As far as they know, they are an indigenous race. They have a long prehistory of Stone Age savagery. Sectors are areas of paratime on any level in which the prevalent culture has a common origin and common characteristics. They are divided, more or less, arbitrarily into subsectors. Belts are areas within subsectors 
where conditions are the result of recent alternate probabilities. For instance, I've just come from the Europo-American sector of the fourth level, an area of about ten thousand para-years in depth, in which the dominant civilization developed on the northwest continent of the major landmass, and spread from there to the minor landmass. The line on which I was operating is also part of a subsector of about three thousand para-years depth, and a belt developing from one of several probable outcomes of a war concluded about three elapsed years ago. On that timeline, the field at the Hagraban Synthetics Works, where we took off, is part of an abandoned farm. On the side of Hagraban City is a little farming village. Those things are there, right now, both in primary time and in the plenum. They are about 250,000 para-years perpendicular to each other, and each is of the same general order of reality. The red light overhead flashed on. The pilot looked into his visor and put his hands to the manual controls, in case of failure of the robot controls. The rocket landed smoothly, however. There was a slight jar as it was grappled by the crane and hoisted upright, the seats turning in their gimbals. Pilot and passenger unstrapped themselves and hurried through the refrigerated outlet and away from the glowing hot rocket. An air taxi, emblazoned with the device of the Paratime Police, was waiting. Verkan Vall said goodbye to the rocket pilot and took his seat beside the pilot of the air cab. The latter lifted his vehicle above the building level and then set it down on the landing stage of the Paratime Police building in a long, side-swooping glide. An express elevator took Verkenval down to one of the middle stages, where he showed his sigil to the guard outside the door of Tortha Karf's office, and was admitted at once. The Paratime Police Chief rose from behind his semicircular desk with its array of keyboards and viewing screens and communicators. He was a big man, well past his two hundredth year. His hair was iron-gray, and thinning in front, he had begun to grow thick at the waist, and his calm features bore the lines of middle age. He wore the dark green uniform of the Paratime Police. "'Well, Val,' he greeted, "'everything secure?' "'Not exactly, sir.' Verkan Vall came around the desk, deposited his rifle and bag on the floor, and sat down in one of the spare chairs. I'll have to go back again." "'So?' His chief lit a cigarette and waited. "'I traced Gavrin Sarn,' Verkan Vall got out his pipe and began to fill it. "'But that's only the beginning. I have to trace something else. Gavrin Sarn exceeded his paratime permit, and took one of his pets along. A Venusian nighthound. Tortha Karf's expression did not alter. It merely grew more intense. He used one of the short, semantically ugly terms, which serve in place of profanity as the emotional release of a race that has forgotten all the taboos and terminologies of supernaturalistic religion and sex inhibition. "'You're sure of this, of course?' It was less a question than a statement. Verkan Vall bent and took cloth-wrapped objects from his bag, unwrapping them 
and laying them on the desk. They were casts, in hard black plastic, of the footprints of some large three-toed animal. "'What do these look like, sir?' he asked. Tortha Karf fingered them and nodded. Then he became as visibly angry as a man of his civilization and culture level ever permitted himself. "'What does that fool think we have a paratime code for?' he demanded. "'It's entirely illegal to transpose any extraterrestrial animal or object to any timeline on which space travel is unknown. I don't care if he is a green seal, Thavrad. He'll face charges when he gets back for this.' He was a green seal, Thavrad, Verkenvall corrected, and he won't be coming back. I hope you didn't have to deal summarily with him, Torthakarf said. With his title and social position, and his family's political importance, that might make difficulties. Not that it wouldn't be all right with me, of course, but we never seem to be able to make either the management or the public realize the extremities to which we are forced at times." He sighed. "'We probably never shall.' Verkenval smiled faintly. "'Oh, no, sir, nothing like that. He was dead before I transposed to that timeline. He was killed when he wrecked a self-propelled vehicle he was using one of those fourth-level automobiles. I posed as a relative, and tried to claim his body for the burial ceremony observed on that cultural level, but was told that it had been completely destroyed by fire when the fuel tank of his automobile burned. I was given certain of his effects which had passed through the fire. I found his sigil concealed inside what appeared to be a cigarette case. He took a green disc from the bag and laid it on the desk. "'There's no question. Gavran Sarn died in the wreck of that automobile.' "'And the night hound? It was in the car with him, but it escaped. You know how fast those things are. I found that track,' he indicated one of the black casts, "'in some dried mud near the scene of the wreck. As you see, the cast is slightly defective.' The others were fresh this morning, when I made them. And what have you done so far? I rented an old farm near the scene of the wreck, and installed my field generator there. It runs through to the Hagraban Synthetics Works, about a hundred miles east of Thalna Jarvazar. I have my this-line terminal in the girls' restroom at the Durable Plastics Factory. Handle that on a local police power writ. Since then? I've been hunting for the Nighthound. I think I can find it, but I'll need some special equipment and a hypnomech indoctrination. That's why I came back." "'Has it been attracting any attention?' Tortha Karf asked, anxiously. "'Killing cattle in the locality, causing considerable excitement. Fortunately, it's a locality of forested mountains and valley farms, rather than a built-up industrial district. Local police and wild game protection officers are concerned. All the farmers excited and going armed. The theory is that it's either a wildcat of some sort, or a maniac armed with a cutlass. Either theory would conform, more or less, to the nature of its depredations. Nobody has actually seen it. 
That's good, Tortha Karf was relieved. Well, you'll have to go and bring it out, or kill it and obliterate the body. You know why, as well as I do. Certainly, sir, Verkenval replied. In a primitive culture, things like this would be assigned supernatural explanations, and embedded in the locally accepted religion. But this culture, while nominally religious, is highly rationalistic in practice. Typical lag effect, characteristic of all expanding cultures. And this Europo-American sector really has an expanding culture. A hundred and fifty years ago, the inhabitants of this particular timeline didn't even know how to apply steam power. Now they've begun to release nuclear energy, in a few crude forms. Tortha Karf whistled softly. That's quite a jump. There's a sector that'll be in for trouble in the next few centuries. That is realized locally, sir. Verkenval concentrated on relighting his pipe for a moment, then continued. I would predict space travel on that sector within the next century. Maybe the next half-century, at least to the moon. And the art of taxidermy is very highly developed. Now, suppose some farmer shoots that thing. What would he do with it, sir? Tortha Karf grunted. Nice logic, Vol. On a most uncomfortable possibility. He'd have it mounted, and it'd be put in a museum somewhere. And as soon as the first spaceship reaches Venus, and they find those things in a wild state, they'll have the mounted specimen identified. Exactly. And then, instead of beating their brains about where their specimen came from, they'll begin asking when it came from. They're quite capable of such reasoning, even now. A hundred years isn't a particularly long time, Tortha Karf considered. I'll be retired, then, but you'll have my job, and it'll be your headache. You'd better get this cleaned up now, while it can be handled. What are you going to do? I'm not sure now, sir. I want a hypno-mech indoctrination first. Verkan Vall gestured toward the communicator on the desk. May I? he asked. Certainly. Tortha Karf slid the instrument across the desk. Anything you want. Thank you, sir. Verkan Vall snapped on the code index, found the symbol he wanted, and then punched it on the keyboard. Special Chief's Assistant Verkan Vall, he identified himself, speaking from the office of Tortha Karf, Chief Paratime Police. I want a complete hypno-mech on Venusian nighthounds. Emphasis on wild state. Special emphasis domesticated nighthounds reverted to wild state in terrestrial surroundings. Extra special emphasis hunting techniques applicable to same. The word nighthound will do for trigger symbol. He turned to Tortha Karf. Can I take it here? Tortha Karf nodded, pointing to a row of booths along the far wall of the office. Make setup for wired transmission. I'll take it here. Very well, sir, in fifteen minutes, a voice replied out of the communicator. Verkan Vall slid the communicator back. By the way, sir, I had a hitchhiker on the way back. 
carried him about a hundred or so para-years. Picked him up about three hundred para-years after leaving my other line terminal. Nasty-looking fellow, in a black uniform. Looked like one of those private army stormtroopers you find all through that sector. Armed and hostile. I thought I'd have to ray him, but he blundered outside the field almost at once. I have a record if you'd care to see it. Yes, put it on, Tortha Karf gestured toward the solidograph projector. It's set for a miniature reproduction here on the desk. That'll be all right? Verkan Vall nodded, getting out the film and loading it into the projector. When he pressed a button, a dome of radiance appeared on the desktop, two feet in width and a foot in height. In the middle of this appeared a small solidograph image of the interior of the conveyor, showing the desk and the control board and the figure of Verkan Vall seated at it. The little figure of the stormtrooper appeared, pistol in hand. The little Verkan Vall snatched up his tiny needler. The stormtrooper moved into one side of the dome and vanished. Verkan Vall flipped a switch and cut out the image. Yes. I don't know what causes that, but it happens now and then, Tortha Karf said, usually at the beginning of a transposition. I remember when I was just a kid, about a hundred and fifty years ago, a hundred and thirty-nine to be exact, I picked up a fellow on the fourth level, uh, just about where you're operating, and dragged him a couple of hundred para-years. I went back to find him and return him to his own timeline, but before I could locate him, he'd been arrested by the local authorities as a suspicious character and got himself shot trying to escape. I felt badly about that, but... Tortha Karf shrugged. Anything else happen on the trip? I ran through a belt of intermittent nucleonic bombing on the second level. Verkenval mentioned an approximate paratime location. Ugh that Kifton civilization, by courtesy so-called, Torthakarf pulled a wry face. I suppose the intra-family enmities on the Vodka dynasty have reached critical mass again. They'll fool around till they blast themselves back to the Stone Age. Intellectually, they're about there now. I had to operate in that sector once. Oh yes, another thing, this rifle. Verkenval picked it up, emptied the magazine, and handed it to his superior. The supplies office slipped up on this. It's not appropriate to my line of operation. It's a lovely rifle, but it's about two hundred percent in advance of existing arms design on my line. It excited the curiosity of a couple of police officers and a game protector, who should be familiar with the weapons of their own timeline. I evaded by disclaiming ownership or intimate knowledge, and they seemed satisfied. But it worried me. Yes, that was made in our duplicating shops here in Durgabar. Tortha Karf carried it to a photographic bench behind his desk. I'll have it checked while you're taking your hypnomech. Want to exchange it for something authentic? Why, no, sir. It's been identified to me and I'd excite less suspicion with it than I would if I abandoned it and mysteriously acquired another rifle. 
I just wanted a check and supplies warned to be more careful in the future." Tortha Karf nodded approvingly. The young Mavrad of Neros was thinking as a paratimer should. "'What's the designation of your line again?' Verkan Vall told him. It was a short numerical term of six places, but it expressed a number of the order of ten to the fortieth power, exact to the last digit. Tortha Karf repeated it into his steno-memograph with explanatory comment. "'There seems to be quite a few things going wrong in that area,' he said. "'Let's see now.' He punched the designation on a keyboard. Instantly it appeared on a translucent screen in front of him. He punched another combination, and at the top of the screen, under the number, there appeared, "'Events. Past elapsed five years.' He punched again, below this line appeared the subheading, "'Events involving paratime transposition.' Another code combination added a third line, "'Attracting public notice among inhabitants.' He pressed the Start button. The headings vanished, to be replaced by page after page of print, succeeding one another on the screen as the two men read. They told strange and apparently disconnected stories, of unexplained fires and explosions, of people vanishing without trace, of unaccountable disasters to aircraft. There were many stories of an epidemic of mysterious, disc-shaped objects seen in the sky, singly or in numbers. To each account was appended one or more reference numbers. Sometimes Tortha Karf or Verkan Vall would punch one of these and read, on an adjoining screen, the explanatory material referred to. Finally, Tortha Karf leaned back and lit a fresh cigarette. Yes, indeed, Vol. Very definitely we will have to take action in the matter of the runaway nighthound of the late Gavron Sarn, he said. I'd forgotten that that was the timeline onto which the Ardrath expedition launched those anti-grav disks. If this extraterrestrial monstrosity turns up, on the heels of that flying saucer business, everybody above the order of intelligence of a Cretan will suspect some connection. What really happened in the Ardrath matter? Verkan Vall inquired. I was on the third level, on that Luvarian Empire operation at the time. That's right. You missed that. Well, it was one of these joint operation things. The Paratime Commission and the Space Patrol were experimenting with a new technique for throwing a spaceship into Paratime. They used the cruiser Ardrath, Kalzarn Jan commanding went into space about halfway to the moon and took up orbit, keeping on the sunlit side of the planet to avoid being observed. That was all right. But then Captain Kalzarn ordered away a flight of anti-grav disks, fully manned to take pictures, and finally authorized a landing in the western mountain range, northern continent, minor landmass. That's when the trouble started. He flipped the run-back switch, till he had recovered the page he wanted. Verkan Vall read of a fourth-level aviator, in his little air-screw-drive craft, sighting nine high-flying saucer-like objects. "'That was how it began,' Tortha Karf told him. 
Before long, as other incidents of the same sort occurred, our people on that line began sending back to know what was going on. Naturally, from the different descriptions of these saucers, they recognized the objects as anti-grav landing disks from a spaceship. So I went to the Commission and raised atomic blazes about it, and the Ardrath was ordered to confine operations to the lower areas of the fifth level. Then our people on that timeline went to work with corrective action. Here. He wiped the screen and then began punching combinations. Page after page appeared, bearing accounts of people who had claimed to have seen the mysterious disks, and each report was more fantastic than the last. The standard smother-out technique, Verkan Vall grinned. I only heard a little talk about the flying saucers, and all of that was in a joke. In that order of culture, you can always discredit one true story by setting up ten others, palpably false, parallel to it. Wasn't that the timeline the Tharmax Trading Corporation almost lost their paratime license on? That's right, it was. They bought up all the cigarettes, and caused a conspicuous shortage after fourth-level cigarettes had been introduced on this line and had become popular. They should have spread their purchases over a number of lines, and kept them within the local supply-demand frame. And they also got into trouble with the local government for selling unrationed petrol and automobile tires. We had to send in a special operations group, and they came closer to having to engage in out-time local politics than I care to think of. Tortha Karf quoted a line from a currently popular song about the sorrows of a policeman's life. We're jugglers, Vol. Trying to keep our traders and sociological observers and tourists and plain idiots like the late Gavran Sarn out of trouble. Trying to prevent panics and disturbances and dislocations of local economy as a result of our operations. Trying to keep out of out-time politics and at all times, at all costs and hazards, by all means, guarding the secret of paratime transposition. Sometimes I wish Galdron Karf and Hester Grom had strangled in their cradles. Verkan Vall shook his head. No, chief, he said. You don't mean that, not really, he said. We've been paratiming for the past ten thousand years. When the Galdron-Hestorp transtemporal field was discovered, our ancestors had pretty well exhausted the resources of this planet. We had a world population of half a billion, and it was all they could do to keep alive. After we began paratime transposition, our population climbed to ten billion, and there it stayed for the last eight thousand years. Just enough of us to enjoy our planet and the other planets of our system to the fullest. Enough of everything for everybody, that nobody needs to fight anybody for anything. We've tapped the resources of those other worlds on other timelines, a little here, a little there, and not enough to really hurt anybody. We've left our mark in a few places, the Dakota Badlands and the Gobi on the fourth level, for instance, but we've done no great damage to any of them. 
except the time they blew up half the southern island continent over about five hundred para-years on the third level, Tortha Karf mentioned. Regrettable accident, to be sure, Verkenval conceded. And look how much we've learned from the experiences of those other timelines. During the crisis, after the Fourth Interplanetary War, we might have adopted Palnar Sarn's Dictatorship of the Chosen scheme, if we hadn't seen what an exactly similar scheme had done on the Jack Haka civilization, on the second level. When Palnar Sarn was told about that, he went into Paratime to see for himself, and when he returned, he renounced his proposal in horror. Tortha Karf nodded. He wouldn't be making any mistake in turning his post over to the Mavrad of Neros on his retirement. Yes, Val, I know, he said. But when you've been at this desk as long as I have, you'll have a sour moment or two now and then, too. A blue light flashed over one of the booths across the room. Birkin Val got to his feet, removing his coat and hanging it on the back of his chair and crossed the room, rolling up his left shirt-sleeve. There was a relaxer chair in the booth, with a blue plastic helmet above it. He glanced at the indicator screen to make sure he was getting the indoctrination he called for, and then sat down in the chair and lowered the helmet over his head, inserting the earplugs and fastening the chin-strap. Then he touched his left arm with an injector which was lying on the arm of the chair, and at the same time flipped the starter switch. Soft, slow music began to chant out of the earphones. The insidious fingers of the drug blocked off his senses one by one. The music diminished and the words of the hypnotic formula lulled him to sleep. He woke, hearing the lively strains of dance music. For a while he lay relaxed. Then he snapped off the switch, took out the earplugs, removed the helmet, and rose to his feet. Deep in his subconscious mind was the entire body of knowledge about the Venusian Nighthound. He mentally pronounced the word, and at once it began flooding into his conscious mind. He knew the animal's evolutionary history, its anatomy, its characteristics, its dietary and reproductive habits, how it hunted, how it fought its enemies, how it eluded pursuit, and how best it could be tracked down and killed. He nodded. Already a plan for dealing with Gavron Sarn's renegade pet was taking shape in his mind. He picked up a plastic cup from the dispenser, filled it from a cooler tap with amber-colored spiced wine, and drank, tossing the cup into the disposal bin. He placed a fresh injector on the arm of the chair, ready for the next user of the booth. Then he emerged, glancing at his fourth-level wristwatch and mentally translating to the first-level timescale. Three hours had passed. There had been more to learn about his quarry than he had expected. Tortha Karf was sitting behind his desk, smoking a cigarette. It seemed as though he had not moved since Verkenval had left him, though the special agent knew that he had dined, attended several conferences, and done many other things. "'I checked up on your hitchhiker, Val,' the chief said. "'We won't bother about him. He's a member of something called the Christian Avengers, 
one of those typical Europo-American race and religious hate groups. He belongs in a belt that is the outcome of the Hitler victory of 1940, whatever that was. Something unpleasant, I dare say. We don't owe him anything. People of that sort should be stepped on, like cockroaches. And he won't make any more trouble on the line where you dropped him than they have there already. It's in a belt of complete social and political anarchy. Somebody probably shot him as soon as he emerged, because he wasn't wearing the right sort of uniform. 1940-what, by the way? Elapsed years since the birth of some religious leader, Verkan Vall explained. And did you find out about my rifle? Oh, yes. It's reproduction of something that's called a Sharps Model 37-235 Electrospeed Express. Made on an adjoining paratime belt by a company that went out of business sixty-seven years ago, elapsed time, on your line of operation. What made the difference was the second war between the states. I don't know what that was, either. I'm not too well up on fourth-level history. But whatever, your line of operation didn't have it. Probably just as well for them, though they very likely had something else, as bad or worse. I put in a complaint to supplies about it, and you got some more ammunition and reloading tools. Now, tell me what you're going to do about this nighthound business. Tortha Karf was silent for a while, after Verkan Vall had finished. "'You're taking some awful chances, Vall,' he said at length. "'The way you plan doing it, the advantages will all be with the Nighthound. Those things can see as well at night as you can in daylight. I suppose you know that, though. You're the Nighthound specialist now.' "'Yes, but they're accustomed to Venus hotland marshes.' It's been dry weather for the last two weeks, all over the northeastern section of the northern continent. I'll be able to hear it, long before it gets close to me. And I'll be wearing an electric headlamp. When I snap that on, it'll be dazzled for a moment. Well, as I said, you're the Nighthound specialist. There's the communicator. Order anything you need. He lit a fresh cigarette from the end of the old one before crushing it out. But be careful, Vall. It took me close to forty years to make a paratimer out of you. I don't want to have to repeat the process with somebody else before I can retire. End of Police Operation Part 2